Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. As always, I appreciate you tuning into the podcast. We've created a questionnaire to better understand you, the listener, and what it is that keeps you coming back to listen to the podcast. We want to know what's working for you and what you want more or possibly less of. Please take a few minutes to head over to bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast to fill this out. Again, it's bit.ly forward slash made visible podcast because your support is greatly appreciated. I met today's guest a few years ago as we were both extremely involved in the Immune Deficiency Foundation's first annual walk in New York City. Tracy Shaw was walking with her now teenage daughter, Madison, who has CVID and is very vocal about her health challenges. When I was Madison's age, I was majorly hiding my invisible illness, so it's pretty cool to see how public she is about her health. Both Madison and Tracy are advocates for the Immune Deficiency Foundation, and I'm excited to hear from Tracy about the experience, as well as her experience as Madison's caregiver. Welcome, Tracy. Hello. So happy to have you here. So thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So um, what's cool about your question is that I am more than Madison's mom, and that is one of the things that I've been working on since I'm an empty nester now. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. Never give up. You know, I always say you can take the girl out of New York. You will never take the New York out of the girl. I am an avid runner. I am pretty active in my community outside of the CVID world. And I am a marketing executive because, you know, you got to pay the bills. Love that. When you say active in your community, what does that mean? Oh, so many things. So I am from a family that just believes that if you're going to live somewhere, you have to live with the people you live with. And so everything from my church to my running club to all kinds of activities that, you know, feed the homeless and all that, that's what I mean. Love that. So you've been Madison's caregiver since she was born. How did taking on that role shift your life and routines? Wow. What some folks might not um, know is, you know, once you become a parent, and typically you become a parent the minute you decide you're going to be a parent, not necessarily the minute that creature is born, Um, you start changing your whole lifestyle, you know, eating healthy, doing different exercises, going to sleep, whatever it takes to create that balance. And my pregnancy was hard. From the literally seven days in, I was sick 24-7 for nine months. So how did it change my life? It took over. And it took a lot to realize what that balance between Tracy, motherhood and worker, and at that point, wife was going to be. And then when she was about six months old, we realized that I was going to be a solo parent as well. Um, And that brought on all kinds of new fears, I would say. Um, It was a little bit bigger than I thought. And at that point, we didn't know what kind of fragile health we were going to be navigating through. So how did it change my life? Uh, 180. And so when was she diagnosed? So um, Madison's entire life, I would say to the uh, pediatrician, I swear, it's like this kid has no immune system. And they would say some kids are just prone. And um, 
And by prone, she had the same ear infection from six months old to three years. We literally couldn't break it. Um, but she was not diagnosed until she was 12, and it was not refined to CVID until she was 13. Can you tell us a little bit about what CVID is? So here's how she describes it. Um, so I, I love the way she did this. We were doing some advocacy work on the Hill, and we were in Senator Blumenthal's office, who's our senator in Connecticut. And his health aide was like, I don't understand. Why can't you just take steroids like other people with autoimmune disorders? And she said, because I have an immune deficiency. And he was like, well, I don't understand what that means. And she leaned in in this humble youthfulness and just said to him, so let me explain. Most people have five proteins that make up their immune system. I have three. So I don't have enough soldiers to fight the battle. And then they have T cells and B cells that bring those proteins to the infection site, but mine are mutated, so my convoy has flat tires. And then, and then I'm sitting there I'm like, holy cow. My she jaw really got is like on the floor. <laughs> I cannot even believe what I'm hearing. Okay. And she said, and then you need a battle plan to fight the infection, but my immune system doesn't have a long-term memory. So I don't have enough soldiers. They arrive late, and they don't know what to do when they get there. And so that's what common variable immune disorder is. And the word variable is key because everyone who has it has a different variant. But in a nutshell, not enough immune proteins to fight and typically not a way to tell those that they do have how to make that infection go away. So wild and amazing. So what specific challenges come along with CVID at this point for her? I think the hardest part for Madison living with CVID is um, we refer to it as work-life disease balance, right? She's 19 years old. We weren't sure if she was going to be able to go to college and just be at college like every other co-ed. And as late as June before she was leaving in August is what it took before we were like, okay, you can go. We can manage this. But it's that desire to be like everybody else and do whatever you want when you want to and that realization that she can't. Um, so she does things like the way she meters when she does her homework and how she does her homework. Everybody else might start their weekend on Thursday. She only goes out on Saturday. Um, other kids have, you know, one or two jobs or an internship and a job. She's a student. So sometimes she feels like her life is too small um, and for someone like her, I always say her ambitions are bigger than her body. That's frustrating. But 80% of her ambition is probably double what most have. So it's I that can balance. totally relate to that. Right. I, I, it's making me think of two years ago, my best friend got married and her bachelorette party was in Arizona. And I was so sick the days leading up to it. And it was so grueling to have to call her and say, I'm not coming. But I knew I had to listen to my body and mm -hmm. I knew that I had to miss this. And if I didn't, I'd be in such worse shape. And it sucks. It's so not fun. But when you know what you've got to do and your body is telling you, if you get on this plane, you're going to be so sick, you just got to listen to that. And so that's that I think is the hardest part is that she has this thing that controls more of her decisions than 98% of all the 19-year-old people out there or in yeah. your case, you know, young adults out there. Yeah, absolutely. So as she's gotten older and now she's in school, how has your role changed as a caregiver? Oh, it's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. So this summer was really 
fascinating. One of the things that happened the summer before she left for college is she was having anxiety around, oh my gosh, if I'm going to be an adult and I'm going to be 18, how am I going to manage all these doctors and all this information flow? And I promised her that I wasn't going to, you know, run away or evaporate or become invisible. But this summer, between her freshman and sophomore year, she took over about half of it. And she's making her own appointments. She texts or um, uses the portal for her own pieces. So she just started doing that. There she, was no conversation of, hey, mom, I got this. She just started doing she it. Just, and she just migrated to taking over some of the pieces. So I just stepped back. In, regardless of whether she had this health circumstance or not, and this is purely my personal parenting philosophy, so those listening could feel differently, my job is to make sure she doesn't need me. So everything I've done her whole life, was to hopefully build some confidence that she could take care of herself. Now, my job was a little bit easy. Um, You've met her, so you have a little taste of who she is. So there are two stories that I always like to tell to give a sense of who she is for the folks that are learning about, you know, what it's like to raise a Madison. Um, I was pregnant, and it's that six-month checkup, and you want to know whether it's a boy or a girl. I didn't want to know. Madison's dad wanted to know. And when the sonographer started to do that ultrasound, Madison was on her side, knees under her chin, ankles crossed. No one was peeking. Period. The end. (laughs) And that sonographer, she was hurting me, like 20 minutes shaking my belly. And finally, I was like, look, we're going to find out in 12 weeks. Could we just be done? You're hurting me. But what the other part of it is, it was very clear Madison was going to let you know what she wanted you to know when it was her time to let you know. And I thought, okay, you are your own soul. Got it. Check. And then she was about 11 months old. And we're at my sister's house. My niece is about the same age. We're in my sister's family room, big fireplace on one side of the room. My sister puts out a blanket, throws the toys on the blanket, throws the two babies on the blanket. And my niece is content to play with anything in her reach. And Madison's like, hey, that fireplace looks I'm going to scale that. That's definitely something to climb. And so it's Madison to the blanket, Madison to the blanket. My brother-in-law lays in front of the hearth to be the human gate, Madison to the blanket. And finally, I see her crawling across the room and behind the couch, which was parallel to the fireplace. And my sister goes to get her and I say, Pam, just leave her alone because until she gets to where she wants to be, we are like, this is going to be our hobby all day, moving her. And when she got on that hearth, the victory arms, like I told you this is what I was doing. And so again, in that moment, I used the phrase earlier, her ambitions are bigger than her body. I knew my job was safety net. That's all that it had to be. And then you plant seeds and you use your village and you let her chart her course because that's who she is. That's incredible. I love that. I love that you have these two stories that totally (laughs) define who she is here now at 19. Mm -hmm. So cool. So let's talk a little about you and your sort of journey through this all. Who is your support team? So I have, ooh, made me a little emotional. I have some pretty amazing friends, one from high school, two from college, and one who lives around the corner. And each and every one of them has played a different role throughout her whole life, but they've never left me. So I was very fortunate to have these four or five friends who really just, they'll go to appointments with me. 
They will let me call in the middle of the night, um, text and check in all the time. And, um, and I do think you need someone outside of your immediate world to just keep that equilibrium a little bit. Normalcy. Normalcy. Whatever that means. Mm -hmm. I mean, I say that in like every episode these days of what does normal even mean. But people that are not part of the invisible chronic illness community, I think about like parents of newborns that are like, bring me back to a world outside of just this like six week old baby. What is life like again? And that that's so helpful to, you know, remember not even your life without an illness, but what else is happening? Mm hmm. Well, and, and they, through all this, I would go to work and people at work would be like, well, don't you think you should be at home? Mm. Right. Or um, particularly, and I'm just going to say it, particularly men, men would be like, well, don't you think you should be home? Well, would you be home? And they'd look at me funny. This is how I'm taking care of my daughter today. I'm coming to work to make sure that I have a paycheck, that I have health insurance. You know, this is part of my caregiving is going to work. That was all the practical side of it. The other part was I could be totally focused on something that wasn't about figuring out what disease she had, not being afraid of what was coming next. There was a control element that happened in the workspace. And who are these people to tell you how you should be parenting <laughs> and living your life and how to handle your kid? It's unbelievable how people just don't know how to navigate that stuff. They don't know what to say, so they say something funky like that. Mm-hmm. So you and Madison are both very public, obviously, about her health, raising money for the Immune Deficiency Foundation and sharing her story. Do you remember when and why you started sharing? A couple of reasons why. So part of it is the way that Madison actually got diagnosed. So she was sick her entire life and didn't understand why, but sick in that normal way. So she just got more strep throat than anyone else. She would get a stomach virus. It would last three times as long. But then when you go back and you're like, oh, but she was hospitalized a few times for pneumonia or, or that ear infection story. But then as she hit middle school, it got very acute. And over a period of two and a half years, she was hospitalized 13 times. Ugh. We saw 21 doctors and none of them could figure it out. So I would go to work all day. I would come home and do whatever we needed to do for her. At this point, she was not attending school. She was too sick to be at school. So we were connected to the school district, but I was essentially delivering the lessons because our school district did not offer tutors under her circumstance. So I'm teaching. And then I'd put her to bed and I would research all night. So early on in our chat here, you asked me, who I am or what I do. I do work as a marketing executive today, but I started my career as a healthcare administrator and I was a pre-med student through college. So those elements are kind of important to the story because I knew that to convince a doctor, I needed to have evidence because otherwise they look at their snapshot of the moment. As someone who works in marketing, we're all about trending and then as a biology student, I understood the science. So I would spend nights trending the blood work and the records from the 21 doctors and then researching, trying to figure out what it was, it was like Lorenzo's oil and trying to figure out where the patterns were and all the different things. It's so wild that you went to school for this and you learned this stuff and 
how it became so valuable for your life. So, so sidebar, I graduated from college. My ambition was to go to Washington, D.C. and do health care reform. I know, oh right? Because sometimes no matter Why? where you go, there you Why? are, right? But And then 30 years later, what am I doing all day long, right? My side gig is really healthcare reform if you think about all the work yeah. that she and I do. So what happens is, is I'm trending all this work. I have a two-inch black binder with all the medical records in it and all my trending in it. And I take it with me wherever I go because if I have a spare moment, I'm waiting for that point of inspiration and in this journey, we have some doctors who are nasty. Like we have a doctor, he's a rheumatologist, and he's interviewing Madison and he's about to do his exam and he makes a comment about who does she live with and she says she lives with me. And when he do- when she does that, he physically rolls back on his little schooler- scooter stool and rolls back and says, you know, children from broken homes sometimes um, exhibit their emotions physically. And I looked at him and I said, her dad and I have not been together since she's six months old. That's how we fixed our home. It's not broken. It's 12 years later. I don't think that's what we're dealing with. And, you know, and every visit, she clearly had an infection and we were leaving with a medication. So you don't manufacture all that in your mind. So the combination of the dismissiveness towards a tween girl and this diagnostic odyssey over two and a half years, it takes a poster in an airport. Um, I was on a business trip. I had been teaching in Dallas. I was walking through the airport, and in front of me is the series of posters when I grow up. Um, And it was all about PI, and I sat down. What is PI? Primary immunodeficiency disease. And I sat down in the middle of that gangplank. People must have thought this pain in the neck woman is in my way. Opened my laptop and went right to the website. Called her pediatrician from there and I said, I found it. I figured it out. This is what we have. And the one discipline in the 21 doctors we hadn't been to was immunology. Um, When we got to the immunologist with my book, I handed it to the resident and she said to me, are you a doctor or a nurse or do you just work at a hospital. I said, I'm a mother on a mission. And she came back and said, I think you're on to something, mom. The attending came in and said, I'll test, but she's physically strong. So in other words, I'm the boss, I'll tell you. A little bit of arrogance in that. Um, And uh, he called me 16 days later and he said, Mrs. Shaw, I am really sorry. I owe you an apology. Your daughter does have hypogammagalmanemia, and you were right. I remember he called. I was in my car. I pulled over into a deli, and I cried hard because I thought I never wanted to be more wrong in my whole life, and I was so relieved to have an answer. All this, like it was, It's just this turmoil of emotions that I, I don't know if anyone other than someone who's gotten that kind of news can understand. I have no words. It's just, it's it's so incredible, the dedication that you had, and obviously the background that you had in the research and all of that, that you were the one that diagnosed her. I mean, that's so wild. It makes me think of my mom a lot, and she definitely was a woman on a mission, too, and didn't really give up and figure out what was going on with me. But it's just so incredible that you just kept powering through. Like, 
I am not taking this as an answer. I am figuring this out, you know, whatever that looks like. Wow. So I guess that's really clear on her diagnosis on how you got to that point. But where does the sharing component come in here? Like what made you guys start telling people or being public about it? I mean, we've stayed in touch through Facebook because you're really public about all the advocacy work that you guys do. Why and where did you decide or did you not decide? It just happened. I I think it's a combination. So, um, and there's two parts to it. One is when Madison was finally diagnosed, she was adamant that no other kid should be ignored. That just, pardon me, pissed her off that they were so dismissive. And for me, um, so when Madison was about six months old, her dad and I split and I realized I'm going to be a single mom. And I became friendly with a very notable author who writes about the experience of being a single mom and does a lot of support around that. She's on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. And we strike a friendship and we start to develop workshops that support single moms. And in that process, she got contacted by Discovery Health. Madison was about two at this point. They were doing a documentary on um, recovering from heartbreak. What would that feel like? What did that look like? And they were doing vignettes and different scenarios of that. And I remember talking to my family about the fact that Discovery Health had invited me to be part of this documentary because of the circumstance that I became a single parent and my desire to make it a transition versus an end to find a beginning. And my family was like, oh, no, no, that's private information. And I'm a big, avid reader. I was commuting to New York at the time, and I'm on the train, and I'm reading this book. And they're interviewing a Holocaust survivor in this book, and the woman says, when you've survived adversity, you have a responsibility to tell your story so that those who come after you have faith that they have some place to go that's safe. And I remember this overpowering feeling of, crap, I have to do this documentary because the next mom needs to know that she can restuff her scarecrow. And um, so Madison grew up being part of that documentary when she was only two. So I sometimes I wonder if I thrust her into this world, but then other times I wonder if, for whatever reason, the universe trusted us with carving a path. And so I think it's those two elements that came together, this this woman who inspired me to tell the story. And then we had another story to tell 10 years later. Yeah. And I think part of it is you chose to do this one thing and then she's sort of only known what it's like to quote unquote, be in the spotlight and share her story. She never really grew up, not, not having a choice, but she continued on on her own. I mean, you were just in Portugal. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and why you were in Portugal? Oh my gosh. So, and you know, to be fair, She has a strong voice for advocacy. She has a strong desire to improve humanity. And then sometimes she likes to retreat and pull away. So it is about, um, I have a good friend from the Hole in the Wall Gang camp where Madison was a camper and her daughter is similar, but with childhood cancer. And Jerry will say to me, they're in and they're out. They're in and they're out, right? So she's, Madison's been more in the advocacy space than not. Um, The trip to Portugal was amazing. The um, IPOPI, the International Patient Organization for Primary Immunodeficiency, 
um, honored Madison and the work of Maddie's Herd with the Faselli Award for Advocacy. Luciano Faselli is a young man from Italy who um, passed away from PI. And in his memory, his parents have created this recognition um, for people who are doing advocacy work on behalf. And none of you listening can see the smile. I don't know what the word is. Pride doesn't feel right, but it is pretty magical to watch Madison, despite all of the challenges her life has had, rise above and stand there and not just be recognized for her work, but for her to recognize that her work is having impact. That was the gift in it. It was just incredible. I mean, you, she got up there uh, on her Facebook page, on Team Zebra Maddie's Herd pa- Facebook page. I posted the video piece. The um, Martine, the leader of iPoppy, said to her, what's been the most exciting moment thus far? And in preparation for that, she had this story that she wanted to tell about this six-year-old boy. And she has this total Sally Fields moment of, it's right now. <laughs> I'm so excited right now. Um, but it was it was amazing. So the other part that you uh, don't know, Harper, and most people don't know, is that ceremony or that gala event was literally 19 years to the day that she and I ended up on our own. And if you had said to me 19 years ago, hey, it's okay. Your family's not falling apart. We're just clearing the way so that Madison could have your full attention because her life's going to be hard. You're going to need the extra energy for yourself so you can take care of her, so you can hold her fear and her anxiety until she's big enough to hold it. Um, But don't worry because she's going to grow into herself and you're going to be sitting in Portugal and other people are going to say, yep, you're good. You got this. There's no way I would have believed you. Like, I tell people all the time, they'll be like, yeah, but life is good. I hate that phrase. I would use bad words, but people are listening. You Um, can use bad words. (laughs) Say whatever you want. (laughs) My life is not good because because I connotate that with life being easier. But my life is extraordinary. It's inspired. It has connected me with pieces of the world. And I don't just mean getting on a plane and going to Lisbon. I mean, meeting people like you or being down at the NIH in that epicenter of all those brain cells that are working so hard to improve things. The word I just keep coming up with is is awe-inspiring. Like I I would have never imagined that this is where we were going to be. Really, so spectacular. Can you explain a little bit more about what Maddie's Herd is? Mm-hmm. So um, for the rare disease community, the story goes that when doctors go to medical school, they're taught when you hear hooves, think horses. Um, but to identify a rare disease, you have to think zebra. And so Maddie's Herd is her herd of zebras. And she uses the tagline, enough zeal to create change. Um, And that's because a herd of zebras or a group of zebras is known as a dazzle or a zeal. 
Um, and she is a little bit of a nut burger for um, puns. She's actually very... Nut burger. Oh, oh she is totally <gasps> weird about puns. She loves them to death. So that's her mission. And her mission was really to empower pediatric patients, to give them their voice to say to the doctor, no, I really am in pain, or no, this really is how I feel. Um, and that was the impetus behind it. Super cool. So we met through the Immune Deficiency Foundation, and you recently joined the board of directors. Can you tell us a little bit about why this involvement is important to you and how you got involved with them? Because I'm going to be part of curing this. Because no mother should have to walk through an airport and hope she finds a poster. Because there's risk of a worldwide drought on plasma, and we need to make sure that people who depend on it to live that's the treatment. Plasma is the way we build the biologic medication for folks with PI to make sure that they have enough supply to, to do what they need to do because um, the work's not done. <laughs> and how did you get connected to the IDF? So it's interesting that poster that I saw um, was from the Jeffrey Modell Foundation, um, and they typically are dedicated to the science. They've funded quite a few of the Nobel laureates in immunology research. The Immune Deficiency Foundation, when we connected with them seven or eight years ago, is very focused on the patient support and education and improving quality of life. So we started there because I was looking for a way to connect Madison with kids like her. And from the moment my peer parent called me and said, this has been my experience. I just made friends. And one thing led to the other. Um, and the relationship just organically grew from, let me show up in an educational meeting to absolutely, I'll join you on the Hill for some advocacy day to, do you need some fundraising support? How can we get that done? And it literally was not a plan. It just ended up being an action. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, they do absolutely incredible work. I was always, we discovered them, I don't know, four or so years ago. And I remember saying to my mom, I wish I knew this existed before. And she was like, Harper, you weren't ready for it. Mm -hmm. I was telling a friend of mine earlier today about this concept of my mom always said, I followed your lead. I was not going to force you to go to therapy or go try to find a community if you were not open to it. You were living as normal of a life as you could and you didn't want to be defined by your health, so you didn't get into any of this. But now looking at people like Madison and other people through the Immune Deficiency Foundation, it's so amazing to see that they have found people that they can relate to because I didn't have anyone to connect with on this. My friends didn't even know what I was dealing with, let alone having someone who was also going through stuff like that. So it's amazing that you found parents as friends and she's found people uh, with similar conditions or her condition. So special to have that. So how did you feel when you learned that Madison had gotten a wish through the Make-A-Wish Foundation? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so that one's hard. That one I still I still struggle with. Um, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit and then come in just to kind of give you a clear picture. When I said early on I was a healthcare administrator, I was an administrator in mental health facilities. So I pushed the mental health piece where your mom let you guide. That was the one place where I pushed. And I make that part of the Make-A-Wish story because 
Madison is part of three communities. The Immune Deficiency Foundation allows her to be with other people who share her medical condition, and they can relate to each other one way. She also is a camper from Hole in the Wall Gang Camp, where she typically would be part of the general population there, and that allowed her to get out of her head and not believe the, oh, woe is me, I have the hardest life, because she wasn't alone in her strife. And so she had a personal community, and then she had a general community that she could be part of, and it was bigger than her. But Make-A-Wish made it all about her. Um, and that's important in order to, in my opinion, develop worthiness. And it came at a time where she was really struggling. So she was a junior in high school. Everyone's doing whatever they want. She's only attending school half time. She's not part of clubs like she used to be, feeling very isolated. And my neighbor is a wish granter and had been saying to me from the moment Madison was diagnosed, you know, she can get a wish, she can get a wish, she can get a wish. But I wasn't ready to acknowledge that Madison was sick enough for a wish. And um, finally, Patty said to me, look, she's going to be 18. We're not going to be able to grant the wish. Like, do it. <laughs> and when you said, you know, early on, like, what do you do? You have to have those people who throw up the mirror and are willing to do it. I submitted the paperwork on a Tuesday. They called me on Wednesday to say, this is our verification process. I work from home on Fridays. They called me a Friday at 11, 18 in the morning to tell me her wish was granted. And um, I laid down on my dining room floor and I cried. Um, getting Madison diagnosed was depleting, scary, hard work. Um, I even had a couple of family members who thought I had Munchausen by proxy. I mean, they just could not grasp what we were living with. And I, I know that if your mother and I sat down over a cup of tea or coffee or wine or something stronger, <laughs> we would share probably that same thing. And this was my greatest fear. She was eligible for a wish and getting it. My greatest vindication. See, I told you so. I wasn't crazy. My heart is beating just even telling you the story all over again. But most important is Madison is so generous with her time and her story that it was an opportunity for her to learn how to receive. And I knew that was going to be just as hard as it was to reconcile the fact that she had CVID. So what was what was her wish and what was what did you guys do together? So my girl's so awesome. She chose to do a photo tour of Iceland. Um, it was a trip for four. And she opted it for it to be just the two of us so that we would go on her last spring break before college. Um, this is such confirmation that she knows she has an incredible mom. Oh, thank you. That's really, I mean, what person at that <laughs> age is like, yeah, I want to hang out with my mom. I mean, I loved my parents at that age, but I was also like, where are my friends? Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, and we had 
the most incredible eight days. Um, I kept busting on our, you know, so I grew up in New York, a suburb of the city here. Um, my first car, standard transmission. I drove tra- standard transmissions until I became a mom. And when you get to Iceland, you have to drive standard transmission. That's all they have. And then when you drive the roads of Iceland, you understand why that's all they have. So I kept saying to her, you are so lucky you have a badass mom. Who can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I only missed the clutch once in like eight days. And we just we just literally drove all through this very pure, very rugged, beautiful terrain. I mean, it was magnificent. And we it was I will forever be grateful to make a wish, not just because of the timing of it or the place, but for the transformation of her. I um, I tell other PI parents, make sure you sign up for the wish. Make sure you, you know, put your kid in for a wish. And they look at me like I have nine heads. And I'm like, look, here's the thing. We could all use the skills of Make-A-Wish. But what the Make-A-Wish Foundation does is when they give you this opportunity, they have like categories of wishes. And so you kind of pick this broad category. I want to go someplace. I want to meet someone. I want to do whatever. But then they keep asking you why and what. So you refine to exactly, you know, so Madison, you're a photographer. Yeah, I want to go someplace and take pictures. Well, where do you want to go? Well, why do you want to do that? So, And that helps them decide, shape the wish, where the wish is, the time of year, all those things. But think of it the other way. Madison wasn't learning just how to receive. She was learning how to advocate for herself, not for the rest of the zebras. She was learning how to ask for precisely what she needed in the way she needed it. And if you're living with a chronic illness, you don't have time to waste on things you don't want or you don't need. So this whole experience allows you to ask for what you need when you need it. And I see it now that she's in college. No, mom, I told my professor I'd like to do it this way. She would have never done that before. Now, part of that is age and maturity, but part of that is she just learned how to ask for what she needs. So that's the gift. But how did I feel? There are no words. I remember the photos. Mm -hmm. I asked as if I didn't know, but really, Mm -hmm. I remember the photos and they were so powerful. Really so special. The one of her standing up on top of the black lava rocks. So for the listeners, um, I had to drive up this very narrow, winding switchback road where sometimes you had to pull off to the side because the other car was coming. That was the one time that I missed the geared switch. I was so mad at myself. But I didn't stall, but I shuddered. And we got all the way to the top, and then we had to climb a little bit more. And you would have thought that she climbed Mount Everest. She got all the way to the top, and she flung her arms way up in the air. And it is, it's the glory of a wish. It was right there. It was beautiful. I love it. So now that she's out of the house and you're an empty nester, what are the biggest challenges that you face in sort of caregiving for her from afar? Mm. So the first thing I did is I promised myself a year of nothing because... I knew that in getting her diagnosed, figuring out what her treatments were going to be, getting her comorbidity diagnosed. I mean, Madison, her primary diagnosis is CVID, but she manages three autoimmune diseases as well. So going through all of that, um, I knew I was feeling things that I wasn't feeling because I was taking care of her. And I think the first three months she was at school... um, I slept. And I'm not a napper, 
And I think probably every weekend I took a nap. It, it, it um, takes a lot of energy. Um, it's a lot of energy to be a parent. It, it just took a lot of energy. And so this year, and I do get to see her once a month for her IVIG, so it's not like I'm completely... Can you explain a little bit about what IVIG yeah. is for listeners? Yep. So I talked earlier about immunoglobulin replacement therapy. In Madison's case, she receives it via IV. A lot of patients with PI do it what they call subcutaneously, where they can do it themselves, similar to the way a diabetic would take their insulin uh, kind of across their belt, um, and they do self-administer the needles. For Madison, that was not an effective treatment. So every three weeks, she meets with a nurse, and the nurse um, administers an IV that gives her borrowed antibodies. Um, essentially, about a 1,000 people fit into this little tiny bottle that's about three inches tall, and um, she borrows it. And about 21 days later, her trough is empty, and we refill. So I do get to see her for that. We made the decision she didn't want to give up her nurse because her nurse is amazing, and um, so we do do that. But at this point, I'm trying to find a new hobby. And what I didn't want my hobby to be was work, because it would be very easy to say, oh, it's all right to work a little later. And I didn't want my hobby to be disease, as, as we say it, right? So I'm on the board for the Immune Deficiency Foundation. I love giving my time to it. I do some work with the National Organization for Rare Disorders. I love doing that. But I'm in search of a new hobby, so suggestions are welcome. Any thoughts? Well, so it's tricky. I'd love to write this story. Um, I think it would be not just cathartic, but probably helpful. Um, but I would also like to make sure that I don't stay isolated. So one of the challenges, I think, for a caregiver when you're raising a, a chronically ill child is that it gets very isolating. Um, before Madison was ill, she was part of a theater troupe. She was playing on two soccer teams. I was the soccer coach and the Girl Scout leader. And we were having this quintessential suburban life. And when you're at the soccer game or the Girl Scout outing, there's spontaneous pizza parties and barbecues. And when you're not there, it's not personal. It's just then you don't get to go to the next place either. So um, I'm trying to figure it out. I, I don't know. I'm open. I'll figure it out. Yes, you certainly will. So what are your hopes for Madison in the future? My hope is that whatever path she chooses, it's one that suits her and keeps her happy. So this may be her life path. This may be just her life's beginning. My real hope is that she finds a way to be gentle with herself because her path is not straight. That's really, I think, no, you guys can't see me waving my finger, but <laughs> that mommy finger's going, right? But that's it. Her path is not straight. None of us have a straight path, but we don't know it until later. She has to figure that out a little sooner, a little bit sooner. Um, she's up in Boston. She loves her major. She loves her college. She had an amazing time when we were in Lisbon. It was kind of interesting her major is political communications and advocacy, and in the last year or so, she's been very persnickety because what if I get to work at the UN mom? I want to do something more global. I'll never get to do that. I can't travel because I have to worry about IVIG, and then all of a sudden, you're standing in, in Lisbon, 
and, you know, South Africa is saying, can you Skype with us so we can figure out our young adult program? Or So my hope for her is that she has enough faith to let the universe show the path because it's showed up for us already, right? In 19 years, it keeps showing up. So I just wanted to let it keep showing up. Absolutely. So, Tracy, you're incredible. Madison is so lucky to have a mother like you, really. I know it's just hearing the story. I mean, and there are bits and pieces that I knew and have read and seen and followed on social media and all that. But hearing it from you, it's just you're a spectacular person. And I hope you know that. Um, And how can people connect with you, learn more about you and Madison's story going forward? So her website's in desperate need of a an update, but it is maddiesherd.com. Um, or on Facebook is Team Zebra Maddie's Herd um, because someone had Maddie's Herd already. That was H E R D. H E R D. So M A D D I E S Maddie's Herd. Um, and that's also the email. So it's M A D D I E S H E R D Maddie's Herd at gmail.com. They can find us there. Awesome. Um, and we'll include that in the show notes. And thank you again for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.